This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to take another look back at one of our classics. And this one is the framework for creating digital content people want to watch. And this was originally with Dan Gad, who at the time was a senior director of digital strategy at the Atlanta Falcons, but is now still with Dan Gad, but he's the SVP of growth for the Atlanta Dream WNBA team. And this is, again, one of our most popular episodes because Dan has a way of positioning the challenges of digital content so that everybody gets it. And he provides a very robust framework for conceptualization through the execution and distribution that will help all of you, no matter what industry you're in, develop highly engaging content that will attract and engage your target consumers, clients, and customers. With that, let's get to it. In episode 15, we discussed the four attributes of ROI-driving content. And when you haven't listened to that episode, we suggest you do so in order to get the foundation of what makes good content, because today we're going to go and focus a lot on the digital space. But before we do that, just to make sure you track with this conversation, we're going to give you the four attributes of ROI-driving content. So the first one, it delivers value. And we talked in that episode about four ways to do so. Those are educational or informational, entertainment, inspiration, and promotion. Number two, it compels action. So we talk a lot about the importance of calls to action, CTAs on this show. Same thing with driving ROI for content. Number three, it's designed for the platform. So we've always said what works on one platform doesn't necessarily work on all the others. Not that you can't repurpose content, but you need to keep in mind the platform that you're using. And number four, and this is always my favorite, that it triggers your brand. And we always talk about the importance of pulling through your brand elements and creating an authentic story so that people want to connect with your content and ultimately you get to ROI. And to help us spin this for digital, we have a very special guest today to give his unique perspective on how he and his team create digital content people want to watch. And in this case, it's a very discriminative fan base. And that is the one and only Dan Gad, Senior Director of Digital Strategy at the Atlanta Falcons. Hi, Dan. Hey, Anne. Hey, April. Great to be on with you guys. I'm very excited about this. Uh, We're super excited to have you and to get all of that flair from the Atlanta Falcons. So this is going to be great. So let's go ahead and jump into the framework for creating digital content people want to watch. And in all transparency, this is actually Dan's framework because, as we said, Dan is the expert. So we love it for its simplicity, its clarity, its focus, and most of all, it really works, as Dan's going to talk about. So without further ado, let's jump in to the framework for creating digital content people want to watch. The first is research, the very first thing you need to do. And it's so important to define your audience because you need to figure out who's actually going to drive your business. Because as we talked about, it's a very crowded space and there is a ton of content creators that you're going to be competing with. Dan, tell us how you guys deal with research. Yeah, 100%. So, and um, and I probably should have given a little more introduction up front, but I, I have a team of just fantastic content creators. And this, um, when we started talking about, one of the things that we wanted to do when I got here was really kind of overhaul and, and move the team forward 
uh, from in the digital content landscape. And a big part of that, actually the center of that, one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that our content creators um, realized that they weren't just a videographer. They're not just a writer or a graphic designer, but they are content creators, which means they are responsible for knowing the audiences and knowing what is working with those audiences and, and ultimately responsible for the performance of the content. And so a big part of that is the research side of that. And what when we're doing this, um, and as we'll go through all five of these steps, but the, the research part is really about the performance. It is, and when we talk about performance, we're looking at on a per post basis because large numbers of aggregate um, interactions are great or large numbers of interactions of article views is fantastic, but you're, you're, you're not gonna have everybody remember every post that you put out. So we, you're, you're gonna have those, it, there are gonna be certain things that you do that will have more impact than others. And we want to be hitting those at a, at a higher rate. So for us, it really is looking at things that help us see the landscape on a per post basis and really trying to drive um, a lot. We'll look at, so for instance, in the NFL, we will use tools that allow us to look across all of teams and really, and we can do this um, across any sport or any kind of like grouping of, uh, of content producers that we want to put together. And then we'll be able to go in and see their overperforming posts. We'll be able to see the things that drove the highest interaction rates. And basically, we'll be able to see the things that generated the biggest reactions from people so that we have a sense of what is driving that performance. And, and the, the reason that we do this is, and I think there's a landscape part of this that is really central um, to, this, to this mindset. And that's with this framework, to be fully transparent, started as a creative process, but we really look at it more uh, in the five steps that we're going over today. We really look at it more as a as a mindset shift in the organization, particularly with our content creators that we needed to make. And um, I think, and you know, my background, obviously we worked together mm -hmm. when you were at Tide. And um, when I, you know, even when you and I worked together or before that, when I was with the Chicago Bears, getting content seen was a lot easier. Okay. It is harder now than ever uh, because the, the, the content landscape has become so fragmented uh, by, by really personal choice, right? Uh, you people spend time now on Netflix, on Hulu, on YouTube, across social platforms. It's not it's not just broadcast television or cable. There are so many options and people's interests are driving that that landscape. And so, you know, back in like 2012 and when and I dating myself for a little bit, I've been in the content game for a long time. But at that time, it was a lot easier to get in front of people with content, um, you know, Facebook's algorithm at that time was not as strict as it is now. Um, there was there were fewer content creators. There were fewer channels. And uh, it, it's it's harder that it's a very crowded landscape with a lot of platforms and a lot, and probably the biggest change is the number of content producers, including the platforms themselves, who are really, really good. So the research part becomes extremely important because you're, it, you, you can't just say that, yeah, we're going to produce this thing and it's going to get seen anymore. Uh, we have to know what is going to drive reactions. And so one of the foundational things that we've tried to really get our organization to understand, but particularly our content creators is there is no reach without reaction. Uh, if we're not, if we're not putting things out that cause people to react and talk about it or share it or, or, or stay and watch the video, stop in a feed and watch the video for longer uh, periods of time, even when you put if you, if you, even if you try to boost content that isn't working and put money behind it, it's, you're just not going to get the same return because 
there is so much in people's feeds now and there's so many options that it really has become a street fight for attention. So the first thing that we have to know is what are those factors that are going to get people to stop and react to this content? Because on Facebook, when they serve it now, if the first batch of people don't react to it, they're going to stop serving it. On Twitter, your shelf life is going to be very minimal if you're not getting driving retweets. On YouTube, if you're not getting people to watch the video for a long time, it's not going to get seen. And even when you try and put money behind it, it's, it's, your results are not going to be as good as if you're putting money behind great content that really excites people. So I I think you bring up a couple really good points there. First is the mindset shift that has had to happen around the idea of everybody being content creators versus whatever role they serve. My background is, you know, as as all of you guys listening know, I'm the agency side of things, right? And so just Mm -hmm. like everywhere else, when things shifted and became very digital, and and then I think you make a, a second good point, which is that it just blew up from there. And how do you change the mindset of the people that are working on the actual work to not be like, okay, it's almost like an assembly line, right? So I come up with the idea, I write the copy, I put the image in, and then it just all rolls from there. And we have a packaging template and, you know, everything's great. Whereas now, I think your other big point here that, you know, I took note of is no reach without reaction. So not only now do you need to be serving up content all the time and have that team aligned to doing so, but you have to be able to get people to take notice and want to interact with it. And it is just such a crowded space. You're exactly right. And that that is um, that is what we're – I think our content creators, right, get that, get how crowded the landscape is inherently. They, they completely understand that, uh, largely because they're – very involved in it and they see it and they understand that like, Hey, I'm, you know, it's, it's crazy. Cause like the, the water cooler conversations aren't even the same anymore where everybody would talk about, you know, what the big show was the night before. Now you get pockets of whether it's stranger things or something that HBO produced. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you don't have those common water cooler conversations about entertainment as much anymore uh, because, because of how varied everybody's interests are. So our content creators get that. I think the, the bigger challenge is uh, I think, and I, and this isn't, my organization or, or any one organization, I think this is the entire uh, business landscape really is, uh, I, I think the word content has become overused and, and they're not looking at how hard it is to get content to perform. And mm-hmm. so that part of it, understanding just how crowded the landscape is and that it's not going to get seen just because we did it is is really what, when I was saying there's a mindset shift, that's what we're trying to get everybody to understand is like, this, there is a, I think we have to get really clear on the distinction between content, which means we are producing this uh, from an origin of audience interests versus advertising, which is really built with what are our needs in mind. And there are different places, there are different roles in different places to distribute both of those. But if you're going into something like a YouTube or you're going into Instagram or in some of these very crowded competitive content landscapes, if you're not starting with the, the audience interests, and more importantly, it's not just interest, it's insights and emotional and informational triggers. If that's not the starting point for your content creation process, you're already at a major, major competitive disadvantage because you're going up against so many content producers who are in this thing and participating like it's a street fight for attention. And if you're trying to deliver a message as when everybody else is trying to stop people and grab their attention, you're at a competitive disadvantage. Yeah, I think that's a really nice lead in to the second part of your framework, which is insight. So once you can really understand the landscape, really understand who your audience is, the next step is really figuring out 
how you're going to gauge them. What are they interested in? What will they appreciate from you? And to the point you just made, this is the pull part versus a push part. And I think a lot of people make mistakes in that they try to push the content. They try to tell the consumers what they want them to know about the brand versus giving and serving up the consumer what is going to be interesting about the brand that also correlates to their interest. So it's a really nice kind of um, juxtaposition of, of both. And in order to do that, you have to be in touch with what is relevant in culture and community because that is the the basis from which a lot of the insights come from. And like I said, this intersection of culture and community and the, and the insight is really what creates dynamite content. Without a doubt. And I think this step in, in the, and again, there's five steps here. I think this, this insight step is really kind of where the magic happens, right? If, if step one is the research and you're pulling the, the, the data behind the performance, this step is the why that data is what it is. This is where you have to really translate data into emotion and, and pulling out, if you're seeing certain things are performing and, it, and it's kind of the magical part is when you, when you see the unexpected in there, right? Like what are, wow, I didn't expect this to perform. I didn't expect these things to do as well as they did. Um, it's really pulling the why out of that stuff. And so um, one of the things that, we're, that we've established on, with our content team, and, and again, to try to ground everybody in the same, we want everybody to be as creative as possible, but we want them to go through the same steps of, of making sure that we're, we're on target with who our audiences are. And this, this, we've created a, a framework called finding the why, where and the first factor in finding the why is getting our team to understand they have to be people experts before becoming mm-hmm. platform or technology experts. That's wow. the whole name of the game. And and this, that's this really is, profound, by the way. This that is it, right. And and I actually, when you and I worked together, um, I, I saw more and more agencies starting to hire what was called these what were called platform experts. And I, 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 that was something that always kind of um, rubbed me the wrong way about that because when they would talk, um, they would talk about like best practices on a certain platform like Instagram and say mm-hmm. you know, things like how many characters should be in there or you know what the ratio aspect or the aspect ratio on an image should be and and things like that that were more tactical and I, and I always thought like that's not what's driving great content performance that may give you a five percent boost in engagement here or ten percent there but but the things that break through breakthrough because they strike an emotion, they strike a nerve, they strike, the, and emotion always wins. And so when we, when we talk about, you know, finding the why or what is an insight, it's, it's that it's be people experts, not platform experts. And, and insights are based on emotion. They're not based on tactical elements as much like that. So we, we want to have everybody really, when, when they're looking at performance data, try to break it down to emotional or informational triggers that are causing people to react. Mm-hmm. And, and then this step, if we get that right, if we can get those emotional and informational triggers right, that's really, you, you, if you can get those into sentences, if you can get those into short phrases that what the triggers are uh, around a specific event, around a certain date, around a cultural event, or around you know, specific things that audiences are interested in in some way, shape or form, that becomes the start of the brainstorming process. That becomes the thing that we want our, we want the people who are pulling those insights to kick off the brainstorm and ground everybody on. We, we want the brainstorms to be as creative as possible, but we want everybody to know what it's going to take to win with people first and then get creative. And so that's why I think one of the biggest things that we had to do when we were trying to transform our, our digital processes um, with the Falcons was, was really put a couple steps in before the brainstorm 
to help ground everybody on what it was going to take to be successful and get everybody at least pointed in the same direction, even if creatively they were as diverse as, as humanly possible. Well, and I think that's an amazing point too, Dan, because, you know, my my role traditionally was as the brand strategy lead. And to your point about bringing in platform experts, I mean, I always felt like we were speaking completely at odds with each other because they were doing things, like you said, of character count. And I was trying to drive home, no, 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 but this is what the research is showing us and what the key insights are that we need to deliver. It doesn't matter if we get the, you know, the count right if we don't deliver a message that is going to resonate with anybody. And so I think the the people experts thing, as Anne mentioned before, is really compelling. But I mean, I also think that insights can be an overused word. And the fact that you have this diligent process and then understanding that goes across the team of what that actually is, you are setting up the process appropriately to go through and execute all the work. Because if you can actually get to an insight that's really meaningful and powerful, it makes all the other steps easy. Versus if you don't have one of those, then you struggle and it becomes subjective and everybody's different personalities, to your point, come out. And so you're not delivering on something that the end consumer wants. You're all muddled up within your organization. I I couldn't agree with you more that it is that insights is an overused word. And I also think it is also it's on one hand overused and on another hand overlooked. And, and mm-hmm. what I mean by that is there's so, how many times does a brainstorm start with, Hey, here's the problem. What does everybody think we should do? And you don't go to what are the things that are actually going to drive impact or what, what are the, what are we actually trying to achieve with this? And, and what, what is it going to take? What, where have we seen behavior? Where have we seen things drive behavior that solve that goal? And, and that, if, if you don't define how to get to the win, it, you end up shooting bullets in 30 d- different directions and you mm-hmm. don't know which one's going to work. And so that, that part of it is, um, and, and, and April, I'm sure you saw on the agency side too, there's, there's so many times when there would be a race to come up with the idea. And then you would re- you would write something to retrofit an insight to, to fit the mm-hmm. idea that you already did. And the, in, the idea wasn't genuinely based on a true emotional or informational insight, which, which was driving behavior. Absolutely. And, and so I think, I think that's, I think in today's content landscape, that is the the most essential part of driving consistently successful content is getting the insights right consistently and being very dogmatic about making sure that that we are hitting on those emotional nerves and getting them boiled down into, into short descriptions that our content creators can understand and then go try to attack. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just so you guys know, even though you thought you were sneaking one by the brand, the the brand always could pick up when you guys were doing that. So just so you know, yeah. I'm and and if if you've got forty five seconds, I'll tell you a funny anecdote on that one that just always has stuck with me to this day. Go for it. And this was not this was not uh, related to the work that we did with Anne. This was a completely different brand, but um, we we were. We, one of our clients, uh, when I was on the agency side, was heavily involved in the college sports uh, landscape. And it's college sports sponsorship space. And they, they had a, uh, a five-agency meeting uh, near their headquarters. And we were going to go out and we were going to basically deliver ideas against the, the kickoff of the college football season. And one of the agencies got up to present and they, and, and I, I knew it, I knew it as soon as I saw it, they had retrofit the insight before I even saw the idea because I knew that the insight was way off and that they put up on the screen insight 
college fo- uh, the visiting college football fans want to have a have as good of a tailgate experience as the home uh, college football fans. And I went, uh oh, what? We're in trouble. Oh, yeah. No, they I'm don't. Like, they just go to the bars. Yeah, they don't tailgate. <laughs> so I knew I knew we were in in bad territory. And the, the, the little the literal idea was based on that insight was, um, and the example they used was so. When Auburn plays at Alabama, we're going to set up a VIP Auburn tailgate oh, in the God. Alabama parking lot. Oh God! <laughs> and I was like, "Do you need oh security with that too?" Yeah, that I'm like, "Security." I'm like, "We're going to get people killed." And and <laughs> and this brand and this brand is going to be in the headline when it happens. And so uh, that was that was a great example of retrofitting <laughs> and insight. Yeah, we 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 had a lot of experience with that, especially on the in the sports arenas where uh, retrofitting a lot of insights into yeah. <laughs> personally into sports uh, arenas. But um, no, that was very telegraphic, and and I appreciate the fact that you already tied the insights into the third piece of the framework, which is a brainstorming, which is really getting down then to what is the best way to deliver the story based on your insight and through what mechanism and when, and the imperative part being there that you are filtering your brainstorming through the insight, right? Yeah. And so it, it provides a lot more efficiency. Then you're able to figure out what kind of value you're going to provide and then you're, it starts to take shape. So maybe Dan, maybe you can speak a little bit more about a couple of examples of how yeah. you have taken some of these insights and then led them into the brainstorming phase and what you produce yeah. as a result of that. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I've got one real good example, but I'll quickly touch about that kind of that transition between the insight to the brainstorming. And I think the brainstorming part could, you could also kind of consider the creative culture a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm really big mm-hmm. on, um, I, I think that there is, it's more than just brainstorming. It's about creating the right creative culture. And I think there are some really important parts of that, including having a team that has a common purpose and is trying to go in the same direction that has a, a common definition of success so that when they hear an idea, they know that that's going in the right direction and, it, and they want to build on that because they know it's going in the right direction. Where a lot of times if people are looking at different goals, they end up becoming territorial on the ideas because Amen. they don't see mm-hmm. the success. And so, and then obviously trust and synergy with that team. And I think, I think the insights part of that aids a lot of that collaboration again, because if you're at the same starting point and you're trying to get to the same kind of success, then, then you know when when something's going in the right direction, there's a lot of building on of ideas and that's when collaboration is really good. And so I think all of those things come together really well when, when you've got a, a, a good insights process and then also have a clear common purpose for the team that helps them build on each other's ideas. Um, but as an example of a, um, I, I think the probably the, I think one of the best examples that we've done where, where an insight led to a great brainstorm and a great, uh, creative piece of content was so my early months with the Falcons uh, we were we were in the playoffs and if you know anything about Falcons history and we, we ended up going to the Super Bowl that year but even before that Super Bowl which shall not be talked about um, <laughs> <laughs> um, th- this team had had a long had, has never had never won a Super Bowl and there's some there was some really really tough playoff losses along the way I'll leave it at that and then so there was um, so we we had all through that playoff run in the first game uh, in the first game there, there was always a sense of like uneasiness or at certain points trepidation. And every week it kind of shifted uh, to the point where 
you know, at first it was like, oh no, here we go again. And then the the second week when we were, we were playing the Packers in the NFC Championship game, we kind of noticed our fans saying, oh God, Aaron Rodgers is going to do it to us again. And we lost the last time we were in the NFC Championship. Please don't let this happen again. And then when we destroyed the Packers, there was this really interesting thing that happened with our fan base. All of a sudden, it was like, because we had beaten the Packers the way they did, there was this super surge of confidence. And all of a sudden, this fan base who had got at that point gone 50 or 51 years without winning a Super Bowl started feeling like they were going to win a Super Bowl. And so a really interesting thing started to happen. We noticed on comments, on posts, that it went from, oh, God, don't let them do it to us again. It went from that to, I've been a fan since fill in the year. And and I remember when, and they would start putting in all these moments. And it was this, and we started talking about that a lot as a team. And one of the things that it kind of struck us is was like, they think we're going to win the Super Bowl. And they're telling their story of fandom because they finally feel like the wait is going to end. And so there was this sense of like, I've been waiting for this since 1982. And I've seen, I've been here for all of these things that happened. And it was a sense that the wait was going to come to an end. And so we, we wrote a script, uh, we called it a city waits mm-hmm. and it was the city of Atlanta talking about the wait and all of the things that had happened. And we had these really cool kind of like references to the history of the city. And, and it was basically about the city of Atlanta feeling like the weight was about to be lifted and like, finally it's going to be our time. And we had it and we, we reached out to and got a, an iconic voice of Atlanta. We got Ludacris to narrate it. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, but the coolest thing about it was, and this is where the insight really came in. The one comment that really triggered it for us was a guy had written this. He wrote, I've been a fan since 1982. I can remember sitting next to my dad's rocking chair and, and watching the games on the old tube TV with Steve Barkowski and da, 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 da. And we literally recreated that scene and made it the opening shot mm. of the video. And to this point where I was a kid holding a football next to a chair and just staring at the flickering TV of our old quarterback, Steve Barkowski. And when you saw that frame and, and then we put we were very strategic and put narrated by Ludacris and the opening frame, you, you could people, it, the, of all the videos we produced leading up to the Super Bowl, that was the one that it would exploded. And I don't think it was our best script, but I think it was the one that hit on a nerve mm-hmm. that hit on a shared, shared experience that made, that told our audience felt like we told their story. Mm-hmm. And that was the one that just absolutely exploded uh, in the days before the Super Bowl. Well, and I think you really smartly captured a lot of different demographics and audience members for, you know, that can get pretty complicated when you're talking about sports by everything from, you know, Ludacris being the one to narrate to, you know, remembering being a kid next to your, yeah. your the rocking chair, all of those types of things. And also marrying it with the history of Atlanta, I think yeah. is smart because then people can reference very naturally the different points in time in their head and the parallels of where the the team was at those points in time. And it just really then emphasizes even more how long people were waiting and hoping and part of the community of fans. 1000% on all of that. And, and like I said, it, it, you took, we took something that even though that, that one story wasn't exactly how everybody's story went, it Mm -hmm. was very similar and Mm -hmm. people could put themselves in that situation. And um, there, there's a great, podcast that, that one of the lines that they they talked about was a lot of people use the word storytelling 
but you've got to make it so that the, so that your audience feels it's their story too. Mm. And that, that part of it is, and I think, you know, April, you mentioned that insights is overused. I think storytelling is a lot of times Mm -hmm. overused too. And, and there's um, how you do it. And and I, I I prefer the word content because it it means it is intentional about we're doing this for our audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, 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 it'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that the way that then you just walk through that process and the next step we're going to get to is the writing, shooting and editing, which this is going to lead very nicely into is because you filtered it through that, the research and the insight that brainstorming now had all the collective creative like juices all geared to mm-hmm. producing that one piece of content. So the details and the nuances a lot of people would have overlooked, like using ludicrous and stuff like that, that never would have come up in a brainstorming where people are pitching 40 different ideas in order to try to get theirs heard in one because yeah. you, the, the, the the whole time would have been spent just trying to pick somebody's idea. And then there's a step missed between actually like cultivating it and creating it and making sure it's larger than life. Mm-hmm. And then also making sure it, it checks the all the, um, the the pieces it needs to in order to have that emotional um, reaction in, in 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 going back to being able to find that way to you know get consumers and fans in this case to react and without using another overused word which is authentic <laughs> yeah. since we're talking about overused words but that is the definition of authenticity right and because yeah. I think it's really important to point out that you know you're not just hitting a nerve you're hitting a nerve you know in in a very um, curated way in a very intentional way that's yeah. creating content that people want to see. And some of the things you said about like feeling like it's also their story, that's intentionally creative like guidance. That's just not like, hey, we're just going to produce something and put it out there leading up to Super Bowl. That that takes like a creative like team in order to make that happen. So yeah. I think that really speaks to the process that you have laid out here. And, and, and I'll say one other thing. I think when you do all of those things and you go through those steps, it it's so it's like so many other things that happen in, in a big business, right? It creates alignment, which is so so yes. important, and, and <laughs> it creates alignment not just you know for our executives, but for our content team. And, and I, the best content that we've done is repeatedly the stuff that twelve people are excited to execute, as opposed to one or two people. Mm-hmm. And yep. that happens that happens when we come up with an idea that everybody agrees. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's well said. And we talk about that a lot when we talk about creative or um, corporate agency dynamic and having that one big goal that everybody is trying to achieve so that everybody feels like this is bigger than just them so that they can all work in providing their own expertise and their own value into the process. So I think that's really brilliant. Um then the next piece of the framework is writing, shooting, and editing. And we're getting into a lot of the tacticals here, but yeah. it is the execution that everybody sees. So all the rest of the stuff is great, but you have to execute it in order to be able to pull out what is that value of that piece of content that you want people to uh, react to. And that takes an art 
in itself. And then you also, like to your point that you made before, Dan, is that you also have to slice the story to be impactful in all the marketing channels because there's different attention spans for different channels. There's different guidelines for how long a video can run in different channels. So maybe you could speak to um, a little bit uh, more about some of the tactics and the yeah. tips that you use in order to make sure what you're creating through the research insights and brainstorming translates into really powerful content. I think the most important part, and, the, and so you you touched on beautifully the, the last two steps, right? It's the production piece and then the distri- distribution piece. And I think I think the most important part of that, and I think this even goes back to some of the earlier steps, uh, and you mentioned the word execution. And I think I think so often and April, you, you probably have similar opinions coming from the agency side. The, the thing that creatives um, usually lose out on is there is this, uh, that there is not enough respect or, or credence given to the amount of time it <laughs> takes to go through the creative process yep. and build the stuff the right way. And there has got to be, and one of the things we talk about with the Falcons is really at some point you have to be intentional about which business model you're in. And we've intentionally chosen because we think it's best suited to to win with our fans to to be more of a media producer as opposed to an agency. And what I mean by that is we need to have one plan and our content team needs to know it inside and out. But it it also means a lot of knowing it when you see it and being able to come with ideas that, that ladder up to the bigger plan. But then moving time away from the planning and the meetings and the discussions and the approvals and all those things and focusing our time on the creative process and the execution. And there's not enough credence usually given to, and I remember on my, in my agency days, you know, we'd get into these arguments about timesheets and like, did it really take 10 hours to write 10 tweets? Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, if, if you want them to be good, yes, it did. And, and that's where I think, and I think large businesses are going to the same thing. Like, oh, let's just knock out this 30 second video. Well, if you want that to to win in the in the content landscape that we're in today, we've got to be intentional about giving our our team the time to execute and and really and I I I'm biased but I have the best content team in the sports landscape. I, I it's amazing the talent of of the team that I'm working with and if I'm if I'm doing my job, I've got to give that team the time to come up with ideas and and just as importantly, the time to execute and produce and put the, the, their passion and their skill and their expertise into the actual work and not be rushing it. And that's, the, I think, one of the biggest challenges in this whole thing. And, and it really does ladder back to, it's not okay to be okay in the content landscape anymore. You have to be mm-hmm. great because you're now, in a lot of ways, we're competing against Netflix and Netflix is pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you you stated one of the words that I never want to hear again in my life, which is timesheets. I mean, I just feel like I cringe as soon as I I hear that word. But yes, a lot of shared feelings about making sure to spend the time to execute appropriately. And, And I think I just want to highlight something you said there, which is if you allow the early phases of the project to get caught up in all those political things or bureaucratic things that really don't matter, like approvals and who gets to see it and who gets to weigh in and do we need 18 meetings and all of that stuff, that's where you get into those horrible time crunches. And I'm totally with you. I mean, I often talk about the difference between the commercial aspect of things and the craft of really being someone creative. And that craft, I think the more that this digital machine goes is is just falling to the wayside more and more and more. And so 
I'm hoping, and my if I had to place my bet, my belief would be that it will swing the other way and that the people that have focused on it all this time will reap the benefits of that. But I also know that when you're talking about business numbers and making sure that you're meeting whatever plan you've put out there, all of those types of things, it can be hard to take that time and really make sure that the idea is right and all those little details and nuances are hit exactly yeah. as they need to be. Yep. Without a doubt. It's, it is a, it's a craft and we got to give people the time to do it. But when you get the right people that, that have them pointed in the right direction, it is, it's that ability to, to basically immerse themselves in that project Mm -hmm. and, and, and build just unbelievable things when they're doing it. And that's, that, that is where, that's where the win happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing back to your, your people first piece that when I asked for tips and tricks, you gave the person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that the talent behind actually being able to create this. And, you know, for those who are like, how do I know that I have a good person or how do I find a, the right person in order to do my content? Do you have um, anything that you look for specifically, Dan, to say, hey, this is going to be a really good person who's going to execute content? So uh, I'll, I'll hit on three things real quick. Number one, um, the first thing that I did on the first day when I was hired by the Falcons was I, I wrote on the top of my board, develop the most passionate, excited, and informed fan base. And I, and I, the reason I did that, as I told Morgan Shaw Parker, who was our CMO was I wanted a common purpose that the whole team could buy into, but would also act as a decision filter for us. So that when we were doing things like hiring people, we were looking at people who exhibited a skill set that were going to move us closer to that goal. And so that became part of the framework. But then I've also, um, I, like I said, I, I was blessed with probably the, well, not probably, the most talented team. I will stand on a mountain and say this. The most talented content creation team in the sports landscape. And um, I, I trust heavily that that team knows the skills when they see it. So I, once I've established that common purpose, I really do. I let, I let my content creators and, and my other digital leaders uh, get people in front of me that they believe have the right skill sets. And then I, at that point, I, I, evaluate them from two perspectives. Number one, are they passionate about the role that we're going to put them in? And I want people that are going to come to work every day, excited about doing that thing and being, and and being the best that they possibly can at it. And a lot of times that means exhibiting time spent against that thing outside of work or school, that this is something that they do on their own because they love it. So that's one. And then the second one is, um, I ask them questions about their experience with teams and that may be in athletics, but it may be in businesses or school settings where they were part of great teams and they exhibited that they wanted to be a great teammate. They wanted to be part of something larger than themselves because I want people who are eager, not just willing to help the other people on the team be great. Again, I've, I've been, I think I've been blessed to be part of three great teams in my life. One was in football. One was at, at Taylor and mm-hmm. the digital team that we had there and working with you, honestly, on the, on the NFL side was fantastic. And then the third one is the digital team that I'm working with right now. And I think in all of those experiences, there was a synergy that came when everybody was bought in on trying to do the same thing and wanted to help each other get there. And so those, that, that uh, common purpose, the passion and the teamwork, are, are three things that I, I really try to center the team around. And a lot of times we have a lot of confidence that we can develop some of the skills, even if they're not there at day one. That's great. Really well, really well said. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so the 
fifth piece of the framework is distribution. And you touched on this um, lightly, but maybe you can help make sure everybody puts the right emphasis on how they should think about distribution, because it's really about where the consumer is going to be the most receptive when the consumer is going to be most receptive, and obviously, again, based on your insights, your research, yeah. and then obviously your brainstorming. But then there's also like how you do it, like yeah. organic reach versus paid reach. So yeah. maybe you could speak a little bit to that. So first of all, I think the most brilliant model in, in all content is what Netflix has done, where they have started, and it's a circular process, and we're trying to have a little bit of that with us too, right? You You start with the audience segmentation and the insights and the research on that group, and then you end up by delivering back to that same group. And, and they did it, they've done it over and over again where they 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 will pull the audience interest, which is right there, they have amazing platform data and they're able to say, okay, this group of people loves this type of uh, plot line, these types of actors, these types of production uh, elements, and we'll go build shows on that. So we'll, we're, we're using those insights to build the content. Once the content's built, they deliver it back to the same people and other lookalikes that they think are going to like that content. It's I think that is such a competitive advantage over spaces like TV, where you can't you can't distribute it back to specific people through a recommendation engine the same way. So we try to mirror that a little bit, right? We start with research and insights, and we end with production and really sending it. Or excuse me, uh, distribution, and basically sending uh, that content that we've built for specific audiences and trying to get it back to the platforms where we think that those audiences are. Um, we try to model that. We can't do it the same way. We don't have all the same data they do, but the principle is, is basically the same. Start with the, the research and data and insights pulling, and then try and deliver, create content based on that and deliver it back to the right audiences. So, and then on the, I, listen, there's been a long conversation about organic, organic content is dead. I don't agree with that. I, I know because we've seen it, we can still generate organic results, but you have to be uh, very, very regimented in building things uh, based on kind of that process that we've talked through that we know are going to trigger reactions from people. And that's the difference. And I think a lot of times when people say that organic reach is dead, it's because the, the, their production processes aren't set up to, to drive those kinds of reactions. There's a lot of, a lot of times it's, there is a business part of that's driving that. And the first steps in the process are, what is our product? What is our differentiation? What is our brand equity? But it's not, it's not starting with the insights part of it. So I think I do think that there is a lot of opportunity in organic. It is harder than ever, but I think it still exists if you're putting things out that that really stop people cold. And then from a paid strategy, um, there's a lot of layers to this, but it's really as simple as this. We think that our best content is the stuff that endears people to our brand the best anyway, the stuff that makes them react and makes them feel like um, we're telling their story and makes them feel like, that our, that our team represents them. That's our best content. It's our, putting our best brand foot forward. So that's our paid strategy is pretty much as simple as putting money behind the things that we already know works and, and getting it to bigger audiences. And, and so it's, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. There's a PSL sales side of that. But honestly, we've even seen that when we take our best videos and put them out to audiences that we think are potential PSL buyers, the ROI on that is higher than if we try and do a, a standard display ad. And PSL for some folks who might not know that uh, personal seat license, which is uh, uh, basically the the process for buying season tickets. Got it. All right. So just to recap, the framework for creating digital content people want to watch: research, insights, brainstorming, writing, shooting, and editing, and then distribution. And as we've talked about already, this is a mindset shift for 
many of us, and that is totally fine. But embracing this can mean the difference between highly productive content and content that gets washed away in the sea of social. And with that, we're going to go into our next section, which is our in the trenches section, where we give real world examples um, in specific to industries and situations. In this case, we're going to use Dan's experience and, and the Falcons as our filter. But listen up for all the nuances for the things that you can apply, because as we said at the beginning, this is all principle based. It works for any size business. It works for any kind of business. All right. So our first in the trenches question Dan, what are the biggest challenges in developing great digital content? Um, I think, especially if you're talking about, you know, uh, businesses in, in, in today's landscape, I think it is under, it's, it's what we've talked about. It's, it's understanding just how competitive this landscape is and the fact that, you know, you're, you're really competing against not just your other business competitors, but against all of the other content producers who are competing for people's time and attention. And, and so one of the phrases that we use a lot is that this is a street fight for, particularly on our side, this is a street fight for youth attention. And we've got to, we've got to take that approach. And so the only way we're going to win is to really, um, first of all, get the organization to understand, and there's a lot here, I could talk about this for two hours, but they've <laughs> got to understand that the role of content, in order for us to have our maximum impact, the role of content has to be to win people over. It can't be, um, it, it's not going to be just product uh, messaging or promoting an initiative that's coming up, or it's, we've got to start by understanding the role of content and our biggest maximum win is by winning people over. And, and one of the things we talk a lot about is we can't have a ticket sales strategy, a sponsorship strategy, a community relations strategy, a marketing strategy for content. We can't have seven content strategies and be good. We have to have one content strategy that's built to move people and then we can use that content for all of those other purposes. And, and so it's, it really is starting there and, and making sure that our content producers, once we've established the role of content, we've built in the, the, um, the, the foundation for them to operate in that space. They've got to be very, very focused performance and, and performance in the space ladders back to, did we, did we cause people to pay time and attention to us today? Did we cause people to react? And so it becomes a, a, like I said earlier, it's about them becoming people experts and not platform or technology experts. And, uh, and so there's a lot more to it there, but I think there is a overall it's a mindset shift and an understanding of how difficult it is to win this landscape and positioning content within the organization to win in this space and, and positioning it to, um, I'll, I'll let it there because I could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> Little jab in there right at the All end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next in the trenches question. Well, I'm not a big NFL franchise. How do I apply this to my small and mid-sized business? And we talked about this being a framework. And, you know, the framework is the same. How you apply the framework may be different. And then your skill may be different as well based on what your intent is. You know, for example, I know for you guys, we develop very highly polished content for the most part. Some of our smaller, mid-sized businesses may not need uh, a highly, highly polished content depending on what channel they're on and what they're trying to produce. So maybe, Dan, you could speak to a little bit yeah. about like how do you make that decision? And maybe you can give a couple of examples that really demonstrate the intent there so that our small and mid-sized businesses can really grasp this. Yeah, look, um, I, I have the luxury of working with um, 
like I said, I, some very high-end cinematographers and some, um, some just phenomenal social strategists and, and people who can, who can write and, and you know, pull people in through creative writing and, and a lot of people, uh, and from a graphic design perspective, that can do world-class stuff. And that all helps tremendously. But at its core, I don't think you, um, th- there is, if you look, there is a lot in the digital space, right? You can follow Rex Chapman on Twitter and see a ton of things that exploded that weren't high-end cinematography uh, or, or really well-produced scripts. There is, it, it, it all comes down to, um, can, are you curious enough to spend time evaluating what is causing reactions from people? Mm-hmm. And, and you don't always have to have, you know, high-end um, expensive analytics. That helps a lot, obviously, but, but I, I think the biggest thing is, and I, I've said this from the start, even the people who use the analytics uh, tools the best are generally the ones that, are, that start by being curious about what moves people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times um, it really, you know, because we, we get that question a lot internally. It's like, well, what do we have to do to pull insights and what tools do we, should we use? And I'd say, start by pulling up a message board mm-hmm, and reading mm-hmm. what people are talking about. Go start by being curious enough to look at at the tweets of that that are resonating with the types of audiences that you want. I mean, sports is a very passionate group, but there's a lot of passions out there. And when when I was at Taylor, you know, we, we worked a lot on whiskey brands, and we yep. there were things that worked on for P and G that didn't work for other brands. But it really started by looking at at those spaces, and I'd say start by being curious. Start by being curious about what people what people respond to and what pulls them in, especially if you can in any way kind of start to find those content producers that you think are speaking to the audiences that you want to reach and just start by evaluating what seems to move the needle with those audiences. And I think if you can, if you can then take that performance data and translate it into emotional triggers, that's causing that performance, you're, you're on the right path and you don't have to have, you don't have to be able to, to shoot a, a movie to do it right. You don't have to be able to shoot the, the most beautiful scene ever because a lot of times the, the simplest phrase or the, the simplest picture as a matter of fact, we see on Instagram and Facebook all the time, a lot of times it's images, simple images that generate the highest interaction rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, for everybody that has been listening to us, you know that quant and analytics and things are not always my favorite because I think, number one, they miss the emotional and human connection if you only use them. And number mm-hmm. two, if you have the right emotional and human connection, a lot of times you can make the numbers work for whatever story you want to tell. So I think you bring up an amazing point here, which is that you have to be curious, but I would also say you can't be lazy about it either. Mm-hmm. And so I think the approach you outlined is really good of immersing yourself where the audience is and really hearing what they are saying and where those consistent themes lie so that you can respond in kind the same way you would in a human interaction or conversation, just yeah. again at a bigger scale. Yeah. And I think part of that too is once you've once you've done that work and if you feel like you've gotten to the right space once that creative process starts do you have do you have creative people on your team that have the emo- the emotional intelligence to mm-hmm. put themselves in the shoes of the people they're trying to reach and really try to think about the content through their eyes and yeah. that that if you can do that it's it's that's a, a real strong way to be consistently good a thousand percent and I think you guys did that beautifully with the Hayden Hurst content that you guys did. That um, there is, I, that's another case study, but um, I, I will say 
I am so proud of my team for recognizing that there was that started as a mic'd up clip that we had against your Cowboys. And (laughs) there's the jab back right there. And uh, and Hayden had a real good human moment at the end of that game that we had. We just happened to have him mic'd up for that game. And we were very part of this was luck. Part of it was skill. He had a really touching moment with Dak Prescott at the end of the game where they talked about a similar similar connection over mental health and 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 found to work together and that struck a nerve and and our team you know was very passionate about there's a bigger story there and they they put a lot of time and work into into getting uh into into working with Hayden and getting him to to feel very uh, to trust our team and to be comfortable telling that story in a way that he's he's told that story before but he's never told it I don't think the way that he did with our team and that came through a lot of work and and recognizing that hey there's there is a much bigger phenomenon here that we can touch on that's going to impact way more people than just our fan base. And, mm-hmm. and really, really, and it comes back to what you're saying, winning people over. And it did. The comments on that video were maybe the strongest comments we've ever seen. And, and a lot of them were things like, thank you for telling this story. I'm, I'm a fan forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you guys haven't heard or, or seen that content, please go seek it out. All you have to do is just Google Atlanta Falcons and Hayden Hurst and it'll pop right up. It is yeah. extremely well done. So I, I, I would I had to bring that up because it was one of my favorite pieces of content at all time. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's our, our whole team is uh, probably puts that number one on the list. Yeah. And then our third and final segment is a real world example of a brand who's doing this well or not well. And of course, we're talking about a brand that does this well in the Atlanta Falcons and and Dan at the at the helm of the digital content creation there. Um, so we're going to let you take this one, Dan, um, to, to round us out. You feel free to share any additional perspective and on this point or anything else you want to add, you know, to, to draw people in to be Atlanta Falcons fans. And then obviously tell everybody how they can reach you. So 1000 um, percent. So I'll start with the brands that I think are, are really good. Um, and I will say this, I, I um, I don't spend as much time looking at, at, at specific brands as I do kind of looking at the whole broad, the, the whole content landscape. And mm-hmm. I think um, I, I will say that there was a time I was a, a huge fan of what Red Bull did, because I think they were one of the first brands to mm-hmm. really understand, yep. you know, this, the, 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 the power that they had. And, if, and, and the thing that I loved about that was they, they, they built the best content for action sports enthusiasts mm-hmm. and became part of that culture because they, they recognized a void in great sports center type content, highlighting the best of that content. And they basically became the sports center of that group to the point where, you know, action, action sports enthusiasts started wearing their logo as a badge of pride. Mm-hmm. And, and that you can't top that. I mean, that, that is, they did that with content. And I think that's phenomenal. I think, you know, I I've, I've said this a thousand times, but, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I think that, um, there's a lot that has changed in the content landscape, but I think there's two um, two lasting truisms. If you can if you can get the data and insights on what people are interested in, and you can build and you have great production capabilities and, and flexibility within that production capability, so that you can make what they're interested in. If you can understand their interests and you can build what they're interested in, it doesn't really matter how many platforms come around or or where the content landscape shifts. You're built to kind of move, and I think one of the best examples of that is the current model with Netflix. Um, I, I mentioned them a lot earlier, but I just think it's brilliant the way that they they were able to segment out audiences, really understand the elements that were driving, you know, watch times and, and, and interest and, and binge watching with certain audiences, 
they go out, they partner with the right people, they build that type of content, and then they deliver it right back to the same people that they evaluated and, and got the interest from and, and other people like them. And it's, that's why their recommendation engine is so powerful. And I think that that's almost like a horseshoe model of starting with that audience and what they're interested in, putting it through a process and going right back to that same group. It's, I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, without a doubt. Dan, how can people reach you? Well, I, I am on Twitter um, and that's probably, or, or LinkedIn probably, uh, if, uh, I think, you know, messages on LinkedIn or, or reaching out to me on Twitter are two good ways to get a hold of me. What's your handle on Twitter? At Dan Gad. <laughs> Can't get much more simple than that. Pretty simple. <laughs> I, I try to keep it pretty simple, Anna. I, I don't have enough uh, mental capacity to be too complicated. <laughs> well, Dan, we thank you so much for coming on today and, and really bringing this topic to life. I, I think your framework and, and the way that you brought to life your framework and really live your framework shows that this works. So we really thank you for that. And then to all of our listeners, it's time to go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.